Thank you, Kristen. I love that old hymn. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. Let's turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have little ones through grade 4 and you want to have them downstairs in age-graded service, you can dismiss them now. We'd love for them to stay, though. If you'd like for them to stay, please help them do that. Whatever's best for you. You know, that old Phillips Craig and Dean song has got some years on it that we, Alex let us in right there at the end, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's one of my favorite songs only because it really takes its, its lyrics right out of the book of Revelation, and if we understand that correctly, that is the background sound of heaven all the time. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, holy, holy is he. The angels constantly say that, the, uh, the uh, church joins in. The redeemed of Israel join in, and so what a marvelous thing to think about. That is the sound of heaven, the sound of worship all the time in our background. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Confidence in the Future, and part 14 here, Confidence in Ministry, picking up in verse 18. I'd like to read that to save our time today, and then it's going to take us a while to introduce this passage. As you'll see as we read it, it is so full, so marvelous, and yet takes us from eternity past all the way to now. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, 19, verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a remarkable passage, as you may see already. Uh, So appropriate as Ben is going through uh, the GOMAD training that we go through this passage that has us directly commanded to have a ministry of reconciliation. It's our last stop in this section titled Confidence in the Future. J. Wilbur Chapman, a late 19th century evangelist, was noted for a short letter that he entitled, If. I want to read it to you. He says in it, If the New Testament be true, and we know that it is, Who has given us the right to place the responsibility for soul winning on other shoulders than our own? If they who reject Christ are in danger, is it not strange that we who are so sympathetic when the difficulties are physical or temporal should apparently be so devoid of interest as to allow our friends and neighbors and kindred to come into our lives and pass out again? without a word of invitation to be reconciled to Christ, to say nothing of sounding a note of warning because of their peril? If today is the day of salvation, if tomorrow may never come, and if life is equally uncertain, how can we eat, drink, and be merry when those who live with us, work with us, walk with us, and love us are unprepared for eternity because they are unprepared for time? If Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men, who gave us the right to be satisfied with making fishing tackle 
or pointing the way to the fishing banks instead of going ourselves to cast out the net until it be filled. If Jesus himself went seeking the lost, if Paul, the apostle, was in agony because of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, knew not Christ, why should we not consider it worthwhile to go out after the lost until they be found? If I am to stand at the judgment seat of Christ to render an account for the deeds done in the body, what shall I say to him if my children are missing, if my friends are not saved, or if my employer or employee miss the way? If I wish to be approved at last, then let me remember that no intellectual superiority, no eloquence in preaching, no absorption in business, no shrinking temperament, or no spirit of timidity can take the place or be an excuse for my not making an honest, sincere, prayerful effort to reconcile others to God. That's pretty good, isn't it? D.L. Moody, who traveled with John Chapman on numerous occasions, uh, wrote, has, a, has some recounts from his, uh, that time together in his Antidotes and Illustrations. And he talks about a young man who enlisted and was sent to his regiment and Moody remembers, he says, the first night he was in the barracks with about 15 other young men who passed the time playing cards and gambling. But before retiring, this particular young man fell on his knees and prayed. And those around him began to curse him and jeer at him and throw boots at him. And so it went on the next night and then the next. And finally, the young man went and told the chaplain what had taken place and asked what he should do. Well, the chaplain said, you are not at home now. And the other men have just as much right to the barracks as you have. It makes them mad to hear you pray, and the Lord will hear you just as well if you say your prayers in bed and don't provoke them. Well, for weeks after the chaplain, after that, the chaplain did not see the young man again, but one day he met him and asked, by the way, did you take my advice? The young man responded, I did for two or three nights. And how did that work out? Well, the young man said, I felt like a whipped hound, and the third night I got out of bed and knelt down and prayed. Well... Uh, said the chaplain, how did that work out? The young soldier answered, we have a prayer meeting there now every night and three have been converted and we're praying for the rest. And Moody adds to the story, he says, quote, oh friends, I'm so tired of weak Christianity. Let us be out and out for Christ. Let us give no uncertain sound. The Lord has given us the ministry of the gospel. If the world wants to call us fools, let them do it. It's only a little while, and the crowning day is coming. Thank God for the privilege that we have of confessing Christ. And that's really what this passage is about. As you read the passage, it can be no uncertain in, in no uncertain terms. It comes to you. Be reconciled to God. We are, Paul says, ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We, we have a job to do, and if we're about... And if we are about that job, then we'll have great confidence in the future. And so as we look at this section today, we're coming into this last section on the heels of Paul explaining how he can be confident in the transformation that occurred in his life at salvation. In verse 15, Paul said this, he said, And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And it was our first confidence and transformation principle Uh, A significant change, clearly recognizable. Your confident future in Christ is marked by a realigned life. You don't live for yourself anymore. You live for Jesus. You used to live for you. You used to live for the world. 
uh, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. But now, even though you don't do it perfectly, you see this transformation at work, and it began at redemption. And Paul confirms that starting point in verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. And that being the case, because you don't live for you anymore, he says, then from now on, from that point on, since we're in Christ, since we died and rose, since we entered a new life, therefore, from then on, since that time of conversion, is, is what he's saying. We recognize no one, he said, according to the flesh. Literally, to perceive them, oidemen, perfect action indicative. It's present, ongoing result of a completed action. And what was the completed action? You were changed. When you were changed, you died, you rose, and a redeemed saint is your new reality. And Paul says, because of that, when you look at people... There's a discernment because you have the ability to understand the implications of their lifestyle for eternity. And so not only are you different, you began to look at the world differently. He's saying we no longer see people purely from the outside. We no longer see them purely from the physical perspective. All of our evaluations, all of our judgments, all of our assessments of people, which were once simply in light of their physical appearance or, or um, as we understand now, superficial behavior, symptomatic of being lost, Right. Uh, or or who they are from a social economic orientation, their personality, all that. We don't evaluate people that way anymore. Uh, that's how unregenerate people evaluate, and we don't do that, and we can't do that because we're different. And Paul is saying, don't judge anybody that way anymore. That's, that's all in the past. He didn't evaluate anybody from the flesh anymore. Only what they need, which is Christ, or what they are, which is in Christ. So he didn't judge by external features. He was interested in the heart. And he was even concerned about the shallowness in a believer's heart. And so he would address that as well. He wanted to see every man mature in Christ. And out of all the social barriers disappeared, and Paul just saw eternal souls. And, and that's what happens when you come to faith, see. And it's not just, and then it's just a matter of degree. And we noted uh, last time that this makes sense to us because, because God doesn't regard us according to the flesh. And we uh, begin to have the mind of Christ. So we'll begin to be transformed that way too. And then the rest of verse 16 just explains this point. Even though, he says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Paul is just remembering his own human assessment of Jesus. In other words, in the past, all he had was head knowledge about Christ. That doesn't appear to to mean that he was born again. It appears to mean that he wasn't. And uh, in, in in the same way, or that that previous assessment of Jesus was incorrect, Paul's just saying this, our previous assessment then of one another was incorrect. So in the same way that I used to look at Christ from the flesh, that's how we used to look at people just in the flesh. We don't do either of those that way. We no longer consider them that way. And then that took us to verse 17, a very familiar passage to us. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, he says, new things have come. And that word therefore lets us know that this next passage is a consequence from the previous one, which was a consequence of the previous verse 15 where he died and we died in him and those who live in him, everything's changed. Your life's realigned. You live for Jesus. God looks at you differently. You look at Jesus differently. And then you look at others differently too, see? And so that's how that works. And when we saw this next confidence in transformation principle, which is the consequences of dying in Christ and rising in Christ results in a radical recreation. See, new things have come. And this is the handiwork of God. It's not something you've done on your own. The death and resurrection of Christ had such a profound change, produced such a profound change in Paul's life. Therefore, he concludes, if any man's in Christ, he'll have the same kind of profound change. Old things pass away, 
and new things have come. And in observing the impact of being raised with Christ, Paul says in this last part of verse 17, look there, all things passed away, behold, new things have come. It's a, it's a, it's a compound verb, left behind, no longer established. That's the literal translation of it, aorist active indicative. So at a time past, at salvation, the old things were left behind, the, the old ways of thinking and evaluating and living for yourself. So you're free of those things, and that's a completed act, and it has continuing reality, and so it's now a matter of degree. Okay, so you see where we are. That's your reality and your position and your future. While all along the path of your life, the Lord is sanctifying you, and and that provides such a great confidence for a future. Uh, God has given us a job. Okay, so you're so confident in your future because of these things, and all those things are true that it, it follows. Then the next thing He's going to say, which is confidence in our ministry. So if if you're realigned and your life is realigned and you look at everybody differently than you did, and all of that, then there's something that's going to outflow from that, and that's verse 18. Now look at there, if you would, Second Corinthians 5:18, and uh, we're going to read this first portion and then really collect our thoughts on this very simply constructed sentence. As I said at the beginning, it really spans time and eternity. Look at it, verse 18, if you would. And now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what Paul is doing is really underwriting his comments here in this passage by reminding his readers of a reality that's very close to his heart. What is it? Every good thing that he's covered here, all of the confidence he has in death and all the confidence he has in future judgment and in his conscience and especially in his guaranteed transformation, all that confidence that he has, all the changes that go with that transformation, they are all from God. That's what he wants to say right at the start. So he says, now, all these things are from God. That's the heart of the Father. Uh, Like in verse 1 where we have... If, if, if we, if we, if this tent is destroyed, what do we have? We have a building from God. So that's God's plan. And if, if you catch anything in this really, in the overview we're going to do here, I want to catch, I want you to catch the heart of God. All these things are from God. Paul wants to remind them then that the great plan of salvation by which all creation is to be redeemed is God's plan. What's that mean? Well, God didn't just have good thoughts about it, see. If we think about ourselves, we, we have all kinds of great plans of things we want to do and great thoughts about what we want to accomplish, and sometimes we don't, right? I mean, we have the thought that we would do such and such a thing with our family as they were growing up, and perhaps we missed it, or we have such and such a thing that we're going to do tomorrow, and, and great thoughts about all that's going to be accomplished, but sometimes we fall short. God, however, see... This great plan of salvation by which all creation is to be redeemed. That's God's plan. And he didn't just have good thoughts about us. In other words, I'd like to do something about the mess they're in, if you will, but never acting on it. He acted on that plan that was his own from eternity past, and he made it happen. And Paul points that out. What did God do? Next part of verse 18. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So it was he, through Christ, who reconciled us to himself. And, and the word reconciled is in our passage five times. It's obviously a key word here. You can see that. And we'll talk about it further later. But here it's the compound Greek verb, kata laxantos, aorist, active participle. Literally, according to the exchange. That's how you would read it. 
the way we understand it, its literal meaning is to exchange typically money. That's the word was, that was used often if there's something, money exchanged for something of value to complete a transaction. So you go and you see something, you want a piece of property or whatever, and that I want the property, and, and so I'm going to come and I'm going to exchange the value for that property. Now the property will be mine. That's the idea. So here in the aorist tense, it's a past act in which the subject participated. So God exchanged the value for you. Whatever that cost was, he paid it. And in exchange for the payment, received you. See, that's the idea. A deal has been struck, if you will. And the required price was satisfied. And you can see this language is just so full, can't you? When you just think about that and and how vast that is and what we're talking about here, it makes this very simple sentence so complex to us. It's important, I think, as we think about these sentences, and I'll leave this up for a while so you can copy this down. It's important as we think about this sentence to note three things. Number one, whenever the language of reconciliation is found in the scriptures, God is always the subject of the reconciling activity. It's always God who's doing the reconciling, okay? And we're going to talk about the heart of God as the one who is a saving God, and we'll see that in just a minute, because I want you to, these passages are so rich for you, and you may spend some time tomorrow as you do your quiet time just dwelling on them, but the one who's a saving God is at work here. So secondly, it's important to point this out. In the scriptures, we don't get the sense that Christ is the gracious one who has to somehow overcome an unwillingness on God's part to be reconciled with sinful humanity. We don't see that in the scriptures. If you will, like a child who who wants to get on his parents' good side and so convince them to allow some certain thing to happen. You know how this works, parents, right? They they pick their time and they slide up with what they hope are going to be the right words and then they're making their case to you hoping for a positive outcome. We don't see that in scripture that Christ somehow has to do that to convince God to be a saving, reconciling God. And thirdly, it would, it would appear to be prudent to point out this, just in case, again, we flip over on the other side of universal salvation, which all these passages tend to be pulled out of context and used incorrectly in those who teach that theology. But it would also appear to be prudent to point this out, number three, that but just because God's a saving God and he desires all men to be saved, that does not mean that there were no obstacles to be overcome in order for humanity to be saved. You see? Namely... God's wrath revealed from heaven against the wickedness of humanity that had to be dealt with in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Because from a human viewpoint, if you look at the depravity of man and the infinite and perfect holiness of God, it would seem that there would never be a possibility of reconciliation there. If anything is irreconcilable, it would seem to be the absolute and perfect holiness of God and sinful and utterly depraved wickedness of men. That would seem to be irreconcilable. And the passage that we'll use as illustrations that point to God as the author of salvation, he's the God who desires that all men come to the knowledge of the truth, and that's going to help us see these points as we pointed them out. So when Paul says this, he says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We know then beyond a shadow of a doubt that reconciliation is by the will of God. The plan, he says, along with all the other stuff that we've talked about, is God's plan. And that shouldn't surprise us. Even from Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Now in your notes, I've left some room for you to copy some of these cross-references down and give the general idea that the cross-reference tells us. 
And so you can do that as you wish. But from Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, this is immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned. It says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and, man, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now, was it a surprise to God that Adam and Eve had sinned? No, he already knew that that had gone on. Would it have been appropriate for him to depart from there and never return? Would it be okay for him to just remade the whole thing and just start it fresh? God could do whatever he wished. He would certainly be justified in creating men and women after his likeness and giving them some specific things to do in the garden and they rebelled against him, he would be well within his right, wouldn't he? And yet, what do we see? We don't see that. What do we see? God, who already knew what had gone on, calls out and says, where are you? God knows what's happened. He seeks to be reconciled. He's obviously not indifferent to it, and he's not hostile to it. How about Isaiah chapter 43.10? God reminds us people who he is, and he says this, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. In other words, I picked you so that I could show you some things. What? So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. Mark this, beloved, right here, verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So among other things, I pursued you, and I saved you. I said I would do it, and I did it. And who can, who can overthrow what I say and what I do? No one. See, it's God's nature to save. In the book of Second Chronicles thirty six fifteen, we're going to do this a good bit today. So, just um, sit back and enjoy how the Bible explains itself, and we get the sense of who God is. This tells us using Israel as an example of His desire to save. He's not reluctant. In verse fifteen, Second Chronicles thirty six, it says, "The Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by His messengers." So we're at the point as we're recounting Israel's history where they have rebelled against him. Uh, they're constantly in a state of rebellion against him with only a very small part of Israel redeemed and the rest of them apostate. So he says, he's recounting to them, he says, uh, I sent to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. So God's a God of deliverance. Uh, God is a God of salvation. He's a God of compassion. He continually sent messengers to them over and over again to remind them that's who he was. He sent Israel messengers to pursue them, and it's all through the Old Testament. We can't miss it. And when you get to the New Testament, it's not surprising, and you see the same thing. He's not reluctant. And, it, and, and not only is he not reluctant, he's earnest, and, and in, if you see that anywhere, you can certainly see it uh, in Luke 
uh, 15, verse 3, I have, um, I have it incorrectly up there, but it's Luke 15, 3. It says this, uh, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine to the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So here, here Jesus is speaking in parables, which is what? An earthly story to illustrate a spiritual reality or a heavenly point. And he talks about sheep, and he answers a criticism of interacting with lost people. And he says this, because he's receiving a lot of criticism. Why are you going to sinners? Why are you hanging out with tax collectors? Why are you hanging out with prostitutes and, and all those kinds of people? And so he, he gives this story. He says, you know, there's a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep, and one of them is lost. So you just say, oh, well. No, he goes and he seeks it out until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So what do we capture here? Well, God, who is represented by the shepherd, says, Rejoice with me, for I found that which was lost. And, and then in verse 7, Jesus lets them all in on this attitude of God, one uh, that we have seen and that he has always had. He says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And the point is this, heaven is never happier than when a sinner repents. Why? Because God is a saving God and no one has to plead with him to get over his reluctance. It's his desire to save, see? And then if you move on to verse 8 of chapter 15. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. In the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So something of value has been lost, a coin is lost, and an intense interest invested search is continuing uh, until it's found. And God is represented here by the one who lost the coin, and the coin that was lost is representative of those who are unredeemed. And God, and, and then in verse 9, Jesus lets them in again on the attitude of God, one we've seen over and over. He's always had this attitude. He says, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, the same exact comment as Jesus is about seeking and saving those that were lost. And he's getting a lot of criticism about it. He's like, hey, you should know this is the, this is the heartbeat of God. He's a saving God. He desires people to be reconciled to himself, see. And the point is this, heaven is never happier than when a sinner repents, and the angels join in, and they're thrilled too. So we get that little added caveat. Why? Because God's a saving God, and no one has to plead with his reluctance. He desires that men be saved. He goes about an active search until they are. And then we come to verses 11 through 32, and that's the story of the prodigal son. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father... Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, 
A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and has been found. And they again began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, I even, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when that son of yours came... Who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours, but he had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. So in the story of two sons, we have the story of you and me, don't we? And there was one person who was reluctant to save, and who was that? That was the one son, right? But there was someone who was very, very excited to save, and that was the father, and one to be redeemed was the one who was lost. And the son on whom the story is centered, the one son, the uncaring son, squandered his privileges, wicked, self-centered, cruel to his father who provided everything for him, and he reaps the reward of sin and returns and repents and he's restored, And God is represented here by the father who lost the son. And then verse 22, Jesus tells them all in, uh, lets them again in on the attitude of God. One that we have seen he has always had because the father says what? Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and he's been found and they began to celebrate. And the point is this. Heaven is never happier than when sinners repent. Why? Because God is a saving God, and no one has to plead with his reluctance to overcome it. And not only did the son not have to plead with God's reluctance, but when the father sees him returning from far off, what does he do according to verse 20? 
While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the distance, that last distance, beloved, I would propose to you that he traveled, the last distance in sight of the, of the place where he used to live, was the most difficult to cover, wasn't it? And what, who, who covered that distance? See, again, and the illustration only goes so far. But it was Jesus' desire that heaven is never happier than when sinners repent, see? And, and when he saw the son, he got up, and, and the son comes back and, and, and his father, to his father, and his father ran to meet him, and he's watching for him, see? I mean, out throughout all the days, what was he doing probably? Because, you know, I grew up on a ranch, and, you know, it's a lot, you know, when you see people coming from far off, it's because you're kind of watching for them, right? I mean, otherwise they kind of get up on you. And so he's looking from far off probably every day. Multiple times a day. So it wasn't hard for him to spot him because he'd already been watching for him. And is that, does that surprise us? It doesn't if we understand that God is a reconciling God and desires that all men come to the knowledge of salvation, see? His son was never far from his mind, was it? He was always there. And maybe he looked every day, maybe multiple times a day. And when he saw him from afar off, he runs to him and he covers the distance and he falls on his neck and he kisses him. That's Jesus using an earthly story to illustrate a spiritual truth. And in each of these parables, the seeking heart of God is made apparent. See. So then when we see in 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, then we understand it's always been God's nature to save. So it's not surprising that Paul can say, all these things are from God. This great plan of salvation is his, right from the start he desired to reconcile. Even in the garden, he was bridging the gap. And he isn't reluctant to do it. And beloved, nothing shows us how willing he is to reconcile us than this next part, right? Than the person of Jesus Christ. And if you move over just a few chapters, uh, we see another wonderful illustration of the God who desires men to be saved. See, in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, we see another very well-known story. Jesus enters Jericho. He's passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So in the eyes of the Jews, he would be a criminal because he worked for Rome. And he enriched himself by charging too many, too much in taxes and extorting them. And who are they going to tell? So he's just making himself wealthy and they despise him. And now he comes and he wants to see Jesus. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was of small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through the, that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, who's that? That's all that are following along. Kind of like the other son in the parable of the two sons, right? The one the story really isn't about. They're not that, they're not that excited about reconciliation, are they? They all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be with a guest of a man who is a sinner. And of course, Zacchaeus hears this. I'm sure it was quite loud. 
Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus recognized it wasn't just because he decided to do such and such. It's not a mathematical equation. If you do that, then all of a sudden that indicates you're saved. What was it? It was his desire to part with the thing he'd loved the most up until that point. And at great expense to himself. Now mark this most important statement. What does it say about the Son of Man? The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And so, beloved, this is the person of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate and shows us God's saving nature in the flesh, doesn't he? So it shouldn't surprise us that that's precisely what his attitude is. There's the character of God made manifest to us on earth. As we've seen, God by nature is a seeking, saving God, and Jesus comes, and that's precisely what he is. And in Titus chapter 3, Paul is teaching his son of the Lord, he said this, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That sounds like, sounds like the prodigal son, right? Hateful, ungrateful, full of malice. Dad, I wished you were dead, but because you're not, please just give me all my inheritance right now. We were also once like that, Paul says. Verse 4, look at this, beloved. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, because God's a saving God, so Paul recognizes that's his title here, right? The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. God's always been a saving God, but in order to reconcile us, a price had to be satisfied, right? And so that's why Paul can say, appeared to Titus. He's going to complete the reconciling work that he started in Genesis chapter 3. So what did he do? He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we aren't. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the saving God made manifest in human form. It's not that God is reluctant to save and somebody has to appeal to him to do that or Jesus has to sidle up, if you will, and say, hey, instead of being so angry all the time, how about if we seek them? God's always been a saving God. But that doesn't mean that there weren't huge obstacles to overcome. And so he went about bringing Jesus to earth, God incarnate, see. God is by nature a savior. And it's not that God's reluctant and Jesus had to get on his good side and convince him. There's utterly no reluctance on the part of God whatsoever in regard to salvation. He is by nature a saving God. We can see it all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament. But there's a price that has to be paid to reconcile us, see. And God was willing to pay that price by sacrificing his own son in our place in order to satisfy the payment for our flesh. And do you understand and see that Paul Paul just got through saying this, didn't he? The love of Christ compels us. Not Paul's love for Jesus. I mean, there was immense love for Jesus. We have that in our heart. 
but it's the substitutionary atonement that occurred that was so overwhelming to Paul that he was worth enough. See, And I, I want you to catch that. It's easy to fall into this idea that God's this angry God at sin all the time, and he is angry at sin. But he's always willing and desires to save. See, He wants to see men come to the knowledge of the truth. So he was willing to pay the price by sacrificing his own son in our place in order to satisfy uh, the payment for our sin. And, and that is never more clearly stated than related to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. As Paul tells Timothy what to teach, he says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil life and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And that brings us into the mix, doesn't it? We should be about the ministry of reconciliation. Why? So this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, testimony given at the proper time. God is a God that desires that men and women be reconciled to him. He always has. He tells us through Paul to Timothy, pray and bring requests and petitions and thanksgiving on behalf of all men. Pray that they'll be what? Number one, redeemed, right? Pray that they'll be redeemed. That's part of this. That's part of the process of having a ministry of reconciliation. We're going to see later is, is being in prayer about those things. It's, and when we do that, that we pray for them and people who are in authority and kings and all men, and if they come to faith, then what's going to happen? We will have a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity, right? Because when people are redeemed, things change, right? And, and that's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. See, God is a God that desires that all men and women be reconciled to him. He always has. And if you question that, then ask yourself, why did God provide a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, if he wasn't by nature a saving God? I mean, it follows that God is a saving God. We don't need to plead with God to save sinners. We need to plead with sinners to accept the salvation that God offers. That's the point. And that's, that's what this whole ministry is about, see. And, and I know it took a while, but we, we've got to this first confidence in the future principle, our confidence in ministry in this. We need to be about this ministry of reconciliation, see. We serve a God who is a savior, and he's not a reluctant savior. He's willing to do whatever it takes to convince men to be reconciled with him. And he's made it clear that he would pay whatever the price that would be required. And just as God who was, who, just as God was our example of not regarding people according to the flesh, but only whether they're in Christ or they need Christ, see, as we begin to look at the world that way, we fall right into this job, don't we? And beg people on behalf of God, be reconciled to Christ. We fall right into the job because we're no longer looking at them from a socioeconomic perspective or just from how wicked their deeds were and we just wish they'd all be locked up and be out of our face. See, when we move away from there, we begin to see the need. And when we see the need, we recognize that we've been given a ministry and we're different. And so now we can do it. See? So God's our example. He doesn't regard people according to the flesh. He also is an example of what it looks like to have a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, And we see that in the face of Jesus. And so 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God, see, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. 
All those great things that we have and all the change that's occurred, that's all from God. And the plan of God for, uh, of salvation was from ages past, has all been worked out, and now has been made manifest to us. So what? So he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the great plan of salvation by which all creations to be redeemed is God's. And God didn't just have good thoughts about us. I'd like to do something about the mess they're in, but never acting on it any more than we should just have good thoughts about our neighbor who doesn't know Christ, but never acting on it. Okay? Do you see? I mean, it just kind of falls into place. He acted on that plan that was his own plan from eternity past. And he made it happen. And Paul points that out. And what did God do? Just one of many very important things made clear in this verse. And the ones we read as illustrations is the amazing mercy of God is revealed when he himself took the initiative in Christ to remove the obstacle to reconciliation existing on our part. And that's exactly what we saw in Titus 3, wasn't it? When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us according to his mercy, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. And beloved, mark this. It's only on this basis that there exists a gospel of reconciliation by which humanity can now be called be reconciled to God and called to have the ministry of reconciliation telling others about what has been accomplished and again I say to you and we're going to look at this more next week and get more into the words of the passage in the next one but I say to you it's not maybe I will have the ministry of reconciliation and maybe I won't what is it now it's a matter of degree you're new and all these things are from God And he doesn't look at us from a fleshly perspective. He looks at us, not in Christ, in Christ. Far off, aliens and strangers to the promises of God, or near. And we began, as we began to look at people that way, not just annoying that cut us off in traffic, right? Not just the person in the bank line in front of us who decided to do 17 transactions and you only have one or they're at the McDonald's drive-thru and they're sitting there for 10 minutes. I mean, it's been the same menu for 35 years, okay? This doesn't take 10 minutes. And I'm just saying things that annoy me, okay? I'm just being transparent here. Do you, anybody want to admit anything? <laughs> when we stop looking at people that way, see, and we begin to look at them as far off, and we see... Love of Christ constrains us. One died for all. When that is the power that now is at work in us, our whole attitude changes about this. And we don't have to, we don't have to beg you to beg people to be reconciled to Christ. See, we just want to give you the training. You find what works for you and go at it. Because you already are that way now. You've been made new, see. The last part of verse 18 really gives us the bottom line. We're in that ministry of reconciliation. We tell sinners that they can be reconciled to God, and we see people that way now, see? God is a saving God. He's already paid the price. He made the exchange. You know, when Jason and his crew from Kairos go into the prison, they could sit there and think, man, what have these guys done? They're here in this maximum facility. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of wickedness here. Now, if that's all you're sitting there doing and, and just judging 
their obvious actions, which are bad, not saying that they're not. And you don't have much of compassion, but when they come in there and you just think these guys are far off, that's the reason why they're in the mess they're in. It changes the way you go about it, doesn't it? You think about that coworker so profane, always wanting to show you stuff that you don't want to look at, you know? You think about people who annoy you, a, a, a family member who's, who's just so, he, they know exactly how to push your buttons because they've been your brother all your life. And they're not born again. They know exactly what to say to tick you off. When you stop looking at them that way and you start looking at them like the mind of Christ will conform you to look at them. You've been given this ministry of reconciliation. The Bible makes that clear. People are sinners. By nature, they are sinners. And by action, they're sinners. Thus, they're alienated from a holy God. And this alienation, because of sin, prevents every sinner from fellowship with God who is too perfect and too holy to have anything to do with the sinner except to reject them and damn them and punish them eternally. That's this huge gap, see? God's a saving God, but there's a huge problem, isn't there? So God himself has made it possible for sinners to be cured and reconciled to him, and that's the good news, see? The good news is that the barrier that sin had created with God has been torn down now and forever for everyone. Everyone is in a position because, as we talked about before, sins of all men hidden in Christ on the cross places every man then in a, in a place where you can say, Christ has taken care of your sin debt on the cross. You don't say, Christ will take care of your sin debt. He's already taken care once and for all. But you have to incorporate that. Everyone can come and they confess that they're a sinner and repent of their sins and put their faith and their hope in Jesus, who is the face of of our saving God, see? And it's all based on this provision of reconciliation of which we read in Second Corinthians chapter 5. That's what we do, see? And beloved, as I said at the very beginning, that's the reason why we're really here on earth. Everything else we could do better in heaven. I mean, we could have untainted fellowship there, single-minded worship. It's better in heaven. That's the sound of heaven in the background. Worthy is the one who was slain. Holy, holy is he. I mean, that's going to be pretty sweet worship. Uh, Uncontaminated, untainted, single-minded, unpolluted lives there, right? You're not struggling against the appetites of the flesh and all of that. Everything is better in heaven, see? Unpolluted, better, everything there. And the only reason why we're here is because we've been given this ministry of what? Reconciliation. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. And beloved, this, just this thought, this kind of rounds up uh, you know, all of all our illustrations, uh, this wonderful passage really, that provides a, such a bridge from confidence in our tr- transformation. We've been reconciled to our ministry, see. It's important to note, as we said at the beginning, that in one sense, reconciliation has been accomplished already, Right? We, we understand that. God, through Christ, has already reconciled. That's the aorist particle he, he used. He reconciled us to himself. See, He has broken down the tremendous barrier that alienated us from him. What that barrier was and how it was broken down, Paul describes in verses 19 and 21. See, we're going to get there next week. However, before, before that, he, he foreshadows in the words and, and gives us this ministry of reconciliation. And, and the fact that the reconciling process is, in another sense, still incomplete. Why? Because... 
because the preaching of reconciliation has to be carried out and people must hear the call to be reconciled to God. And unless they respond to that call, what? They cannot actually experience reconciliation. So you are that vehicle by which the message is given. See? See? We're out of time. So let's pray. We'll pick up here next week. It's been a joy to be with you this morning. Father, we thank you tonight for, or today for this opportunity to be in your word, and we are grateful for its clarity, and we are grateful for its immense power. I, even after studying this all week, just I am still overwhelmed at this job that we're given and the amazing love that prompted you, Father, to send your son. But that shouldn't surprise me because you've always been a saving God, a God who desires all men to come to the knowledge of repentance. Lord, we're so, I'm so grateful that I'm, that I'm fruit of that, that someone many years ago understood they'd been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so they told a little boy about the bad news and the good news. And I got to hear that, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, responded in faith. Thank you for letting that happen. And we can all thank the Lord if, we are in, if we're redeemed, we can give the Lord praise for that right now. Because someone understood the ministry of reconciliation and they carried it out on your behalf. And Father, we know that if, if they who reject Christ, as we saw earlier, are in danger, is it not strange that we who are so sympathetic when the difficulties are physical or temporary should apparently be so devoid of interest as to allow our friends and our neighbors and kindred to come into our lives and pass out again without a word of invitation to be reconciled to Christ, to say nothing of sounding a note of warning because of their peril. So, Father, as you have in your marvelous way that you do, dovetailed all of our lessons together today. The Sunday school time and the teaching time all working in such a way that we can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that we've been given this ministry because we're new and because if to the degree you desire us to, we're looking at people from a new way, no longer in the flesh like we used to regard Christ, but now with a renewed mind, a spirit of understanding that now we're looking at the world differently. I pray, Lord, that you will give us that burden. It's how the church grows. It's how the church has always grown. By conversion. So, Father, help us to be about that. You've given us all mission fields, uh, small bubbles of influence around us, our colleagues and, and friends and family who are close. And Lord, I pray that we'll be about that. And as we understand, as we say over and over again, as we understand some certain part of Scripture, then you have required us to put it to work. Yes, Lord, we understand this is our job. Okay, we'll do this. Empower us to do it with efficiency and effectiveness by your Holy Spirit. As we live lives, they're pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said.